This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. I've been following Colleen's blog for many years and have always found her analysis to be some of the very best out there for visitor-serving organizations and other cultural institutions, a voice I knew we had to bring to our growing PreserveCast audience. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by Colleen Dillon Schneider, who is the Chief Market Engagement Officer for Impacts, which is a global leader in the predictive market intelligence and related technologies, which is a whole lot to say. Um, she is a data-driven mind um, and works in the world of cultural visitor-serving organizations. We're going to talk about what all that means um, and why it's so important, particularly at a moment in time right now as we come out of this pandemic and how museums and aquariums and zoos um, and historic sites pivot and figure out how they bring visitors back. But before we get there, we love to get to know our guests. So Colleen, where did you grow up and when did you get interested in this line of work? And I guess maybe you have to explain what is this line of work, but, but what was your spark? Yes, thank you for asking. Before I dive in, I just want to say a big thank you for having me. I have learned already learned so many interesting things through PreserveCast, like what is gastroegyptology? And you started a, a deep dive into the green book for me. So I'm thrilled to be here and to be um, to be talking data and my experiences. And I'm glad that it may be of interest. And to answer your question, um, I love this question because in the work that I do, uh, it is about how to engage individuals to make the decision to attend history organizations and historic sites. So it's always interesting to me to hear, to talk about my spark moment, of course, of course, but also to hear other people's spark, moves, spark moments because sometimes they tend to be a little bit similar. But mine is that I was born and raised in a suburb of Chicago. And when I was 10 years old, I'm the oldest of four children, Chicago's the accent. It's gotten a little bit worse since the pandemic and I've been in one place. <laughs> But I am the oldest of four children, and my mother um, established this thing that she called, and I'm air quoting, special days. And it only lasted three summers. It started when I was 10 years old, when she would take each of my siblings and I individually to downtown Chicago, and we could do whatever we wanted. And it wasn't a trick. You know, it sounds like a trick. You know, really? Can we do whatever we want? Uh, but she really did. We, she took us to candy stores and toy stores. And as the oldest of four, I had to go last, and I could do anything I wanted, and I chose to go in my nerdy way to the Art Institute of Chicago. They were having a Monet exhibit and my mom is an artist and I had always been interested in art. So I wanted to have this special moment, this one-on-one -on -one time with my mom at the Art Institute of Chicago. And to this day, I still remember so much about that experience. I remember the way that, I remember the, the wayfinding signs. I remember the smell of the special exhibit. But um, the thing that I remember most is that it was a special day with my mom. And if it weren't for that moment or that memory, I think it's safe to say that I wouldn't be doing what I am doing now. And the reason I love the spark moment question so much is in our research, we have found that who people are with is over two and a half times more important than what people see when they go to any kind of cultural institution and including, of course, heritage sites, history organizations and history museums. So I love the question because, right, we talk so much about telling stories and certainly we tell stories, but the spark moment question emphasizes that we make stories too. 
And that's really like the story I just told you about my spark moment. And that's kind of where the rubber hits the road. But I wonder, is your spark moment, is, is yours a with over what spark moments? Well, it's it's interesting that it's well, I love that you're asking asking me a question. That's fantastic. Normally I don't get asked questions here. Um, so I feel like mine actually was hearing about my Civil War ancestor from my great-grandmother who met him. So she was in her 90s when she passed away. And so she was born in 1910. And um she um met our Civil War ancestor. Um, and a man by the name of George Trowbridge. And, and so that was always this, like, it was like, wow, she had met this guy in the civil war. And I was always fascinated by it and sort of like poured over books and looked at pictures and thought it was so interesting. And having that like physical connection, like holding her old little wrinkled hand and then realizing that like, wow, she touched a civil war soldier. So like, for me, that was sort of the spark of like, wow, this is like all connected. Like it's not that far away kind of thing. Right. Interesting little story is then I went to the National Archives, which I'm sure you've worked with, and because you've worked with everybody, and um, and come to find out that he was like a total, using Civil War slang, like a total scallywag. He was a bounty jumper and um, then was arrested and convicted on grand larceny and all of these terrible things. Um, but but she did get to meet him. So um, and it actually for me it makes the story even better, right? Like nobody who wants to have a civil war hero. Like you'd rather have a civil war horse thief, and that's who is mine. So he actually got investigated um, for he basically applied for two pensions under different names and tried to commit uh, fraud. And they sent an investigator out. And it's actually when you get that story, it's even better, right? Because um, there's all these notes about him going to Connie at Ohio and trying to find this guy. Um, and the investigator, one of my, I, and I will stop with my story, but the investigator says that after meeting this man, you feel as if you want to take a long, hot bath. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, great, great grandpa. <laughs> so, so the spark that became sort of this weird twisted story, but definitely still a spark. And I was also going to say too, it's interesting that you talk about, it's about who you're with which I think is fascinating. And obviously the, the work that we do here on PreserveCast and interviewing people isn't, it's, it's subjective data, right? It's not, it's not the kind of data that you always like to drill into. But I will say, if you were to look at the, you know, you're our, I think I was saying you're like our 188th episode or something. So 188th guest, give or take, because we've had a few repeats. Um, but the vast majority, 98% of them or something like that, their spark or their, foray into this line of work or whatever their line of work was, is a parent taking them somewhere. Right. So, yeah. and it's, so it's about who they were with in that moment and what they felt at that moment. So, um, yeah, your data, your data bears out what we've heard, at least anecdotally as well. Absolutely. And yours has that with component memory too, of your grandmother. And you mentioned even just that memory of holding her hand, holding yeah. the hand of a person who it's that, that, that personal connection that can really spark that excitement for the past and for history and for cultural experiences on the whole. So thank you for yeah. sharing your spark moment as well. Yeah, I'm glad I got to glad I got to do that. So okay, so you have this spark, you have these cool days, which I, I love this idea. I have a, a daughter and um, I, I kind of want to steal that idea. Um, but what's your first job in the field? Like, well, I guess also, what do you how do you study to become what you are? Because you're you're unique. I mean, we're all unique, but you're particularly unique. There's not a lot of people that do what you do and the niche that you're in, but you go and study what, and then you go and work where? Oh, great question. 
my career path has been unique um, in that I couldn't, it's one of those career paths that you couldn't have seen coming. It's very much time of the internet centric. I studied well, under my undergrad, I went to the University of Chicago. And from an academic standpoint, I studied English and visual arts. I was always into, back to the Art Institute, I was always interested in art and art theory and art history. And while I was at the University of Chicago, I had a job at the Smart Museum of Art, which is our art museum on campus. And I had always known I was interested in art and museums, again, the spark moment. Um, so when I graduated, I moved out to Seattle and my first full, my very first full-time job, um, actually my only full-time job before I was picked up by Impacts with a cultural visitor serving organization was with um, the Pacific Science Center in Seattle. And I worked there for two years as the special events coordinator, bringing in alpaca farmers and and for, for science days and planning large-scale science events. And that's where I kind of realized that what I was interested in was, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm a hardcore Ravenclaw. You can't get more Ravenclaw than, than I'm, I'm a book lover, total bookworm. I'm absolutely um, taking all of the information I can, I can get. It comes and, across in the blog. <laughs> If you're trying to hide it, you're not doing a good job of it. So it, it's it's very clear. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, well, good. Yep. <laughs> it is correct. Um, so I went out there, yep, and I worked at uh, Pacific Science Center. And then from there, I realized that what I was really interested in was getting people excited about learning. And that's when I realized that I had that kind of moment where it was, what do I want to do? So I went out to grad school. I went to the University of Southern California to pursue um, and receive my master's of public administration and nonprofit management. But when, it, when I was there, I started a blog. That's when I started Know Your Own Phone. So I have a website and it's called Know Your Own Phone. And the title of it actually comes from a quote from Henry David Thoreau. And it goes like this, do what you love, know your own bone, nod it, bury it, unearth it, and nod it still. And at the time that I created Know Your Own Bone over 10 years ago, I was, you know, a grad school in pajamas writing about what was happening on the internet and aggregating what museums were doing on the internet. Because at that time, 10 years ago, you know, museums were just starting to get on Twitter. People were still saying, I still remember, you know, at one of the first conferences I got to attend as a speaker, um, people were saying, what do we need to do about Bookface? Should we be on the Bookface? And um, so I still remember it. Things were really changing then. So thanks to the website, my first ever speaking engagement with was with IMLS, Institute Museum and Library Services. And from there, things spiraled. I was picked up, I was doing, um, so I was leaving school to do some speaking engagements and that on the road at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums Conference was where I got picked up by Impacts, the company that I work with now. And um, they said, hey, there's a rogue millennial on the loose. She's talking about how museums should use social media. The data is showing that digital engagement is increasingly important for the solvency of museums and organizations. Um, you should really look into to, to this person. And at the time, the company had said, all right, we'll let you keep. Well, I said, can I keep know your own phone? And they said, well, for today, you can. For today, you can. And we'll check back you know, tomorrow, essentially. And of course, like once a month. Um, it would be, okay, can we still do Know Your Own Bone? And then we are a research company. So I started asking if we could share our non-proprietary data for the industry on Know Your Own Bone. And I started doing that. And then it spiraled <laughs> and it got, you know, 1,000 readers, then 2,000 readers, then 10,000 readers. Um, and it's spiraled from there. And now it has, you know, tens of thousands of readers. And um, and it just spiraled from there. And the company said, well, okay, thank you. <laughs> 
I yeah. think that we'll, 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 we'll let Know Your Own Book stick around. So yeah. every other Wednesday at this point, I share high confidence market research um, to help inform strategic decisions for cultural institutions. And that includes exhibit-based institutions, like of course, history museums, historic sites, historic houses, um, but also zoos, aquariums, and other types of museums, as well as symphonies, orchestras, and other performing arts organizations. Yeah, and I feel like even if, let's say, and we're going to talk about this, even if you have an organization that doesn't serve visitors, there's always something to glean from it, right? It's just like, what are people thinking? How are they impacting place? You do a lot, you know, there's stuff about fundraising and what appeals to people and how you get people to give and engage. And um, yeah, I, I think if you're not checking it out regularly, you're, it's a, you're, you're missing something if you work in this field. So um, you, you should, you should be living there and there's so much content you could, you could spend years going back through all of the old posts. So, so let's talk a little bit about, about impacts. Um, so we, how long has this company existed? Who do you serve and what do you provide? So if someone's listening and is like, oh, well, I want to hire Colleen or impacts to do something for my organization or the museum I work at, what is it that they could hire you to do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. We are a, well, Impact started, I want to say 15 years ago or 15 to 18, 15 to 18 years ago. Um, and we were predominantly, um, until I joined on, uh, we did not do very much work with visitor serving organizations. Our primary clients as a predictive technology and market research company were the government, we did a lot of work and do a lot of work with the Department of State, as well as for-profit and specifically entertainment clients. We have a whole section of our company that works with um, entertainment, the entertainment industry. And really, when we first started getting into uh, museums, it was at the request of a foundation. And then we found out, and this won't surprise you at all, we found out that the amount that one needs to understand in order to succeed in motivating people to make the decision to go to a museum is a lot of behavioral psychology and understanding behavioral economics. And we found that having the research and investing in the research and figuring out, ready, how someone is going to decide what what museum they're going to go to, that they're going to go to a museum at all, to get in the car and drive X number of miles, to play, to park, to pay an added fee to park, to play real life Frogger across the street, to avoid or embrace the gift shop. There are so many decisions that it benefits our company as a research company that aims to motivate different behaviors to understand. So at that point, collecting information about museums became a little bit of our R&D. Um, so right now, so that's kind of how we started, but right now, Impact's experience, we've, we, have, uh, we have expanded and realized that we might provide some, indeed, some additional value to cultural organizations. So right now, what we do is my colleagues and I bounce around the country right now, bounce around Zoom, and we share high confidence research regarding different, um, different industries. We can cut for, you know, just historic houses. We can cut for heritage organizations. We can cut for zoos, aquariums. We can just cut by certain regions. And we track and trend behaviors that, and lead workshops that can help inform those strategic decisions. The other thing that we do is we're lucky to have several partners that we work with very closely for whom we're tracking their KPIs, um, how they're doing, how much the industry is admiring them, what What's people a, are speaking of them. Let me stop you there. What's a KPI? Great question. A KPI <laughs> is a key performance indicator. So it is a measurement that um, or an organization will track over time to assess its sustainability and its, its health. And it could be their KPIs for how well an organization is achieving its mission. And there are also, of course, KPIs relating to um, revenue and also how many people are we inviting through the door and how are we engaging them. So we take up in some 
Um, we can do workshops for groups of people, but we also work with specific partners to figure out things like, hey, what's the best membership structure for us? What what's our data informed optimal price point? Do we need a new? Should we build this new addition to our space right now, or is that not going to increase our attendance? And if it is, how much is it going to increase our attendance? So we can really get to the bottom of those questions. So any any data that you need um, or uh, you need to interrogate, uh, you can pick up the phone or send an email over and uh, you guys can can help them out with that. Where do they, I mean, we're going to give you a chance at the end to give a plug, but where do they go? And we'll have a, a show note uh, and some links here, but where's the best place to find all the information about impacts? Great. Go ahead. Well, first of all, if you are a Know Your Own Bone reader, thank you very much. There are links to Impact Experience on Know Your Own Bone. And we're also impactsexperience.com. So without hyphen. So why don't we take a quick break here and come back and then talk about like the best way to begin to get more data focused as a nonprofit executive. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. We want to thank Civil War Trails, Inc. for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Civil War Trails is the world's largest open air museum, offering over 1,350 sites across six states. Paddle to Frederick Douglass's birthplace on Maryland's eastern shore. Follow the Antietam campaign by car or bike and hike the South Mountain Battlefield. Follow Civil War Trails and create some history of your own. Visit civilwartrails.org to plan your trip today. We're talking with Colleen Dillenschneider uh, today on PreserveCast and thrilled to be digging into all of the uh, background of her work and um, the work that she does at Impacts Experience. And we've been talking um, prior um, to our break uh, with Colleen about uh, how that um, works uh, at Impacts and what Impacts can provide for uh, potential clients. But so data for like a cultural nonprofit executive, which however you want to define that, whether they're working in a zoo, a museum, a historic site, it's really important, but it's also, I think would be easy to say is daunting. There's just so much. Um, if you're talking to somebody, an executive who hasn't really done this before, what's the, the best single way to get more data focused? Um, what, what would you, what's, what's the sort of the, the gateway uh, drug to data that you would encourage them to take? That's a great question. Well, as you know, of course, and listeners know, data is very much a hot topic right now. So there seems to be an understanding that it is a good idea to aim to be a data-informed organization that adheres to the needs or contemplates the needs of the audiences that an organization is looking to serve. What we find is that, of course, one of the most obvious challenges, and if we were to ask leaders of cultural institutions what they might say the biggest challenge is, I wouldn't be surprised if they said that it was funding. High confidence market research can be, particularly market research, can be expensive if you want to survey audiences that not only are coming, but those people who aren't coming. And how do we get them in the door, especially at a time right now when diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice are so important. Um, so that's one thing. So that that is important. So just acknowledging the importance of data on the whole and working with communities, getting together with folks who can maybe share the cost when it's needed, but also utilizing those tools that are already out there, things like Know Your Own Phone, Pew Research always has data coming out that you can just find on the internet can help start to become, have some more data-informed thinking. But I will say that there are two things that have actually been the issue of making an institution 
data informed specifically. And they both are in the brain. The first one is um, we see one challenge to being a true data informed organization, which is more than just seeing the data and putting it on the shelf, right? Actually acting on it is a misunderstanding that we are believing that or misunderstanding the fact that we are not our audiences. You and I, Nicholas, and the people who are listening to this, we are super users. We are insiders. That's what makes us good at our jobs, right? We are already amped about these stories. We already have an idea of what's cool and maybe what might not be cool. We are the bridges between our mission and the people, the communities that we serve. But one error that we seem to see happen is thinking that because we insiders like something, that that's exactly the way that the rest of the United States thinks. So here's people can't example. see me right now. They can't see me nodding my head in agreement. But yeah, it's I see this over and over again. And I even see it in our own work. And we're always trying to correct it. Um, where, yeah, we're in the weeds in our in our in our work and thinking that people are following us that closely. And that you know sometimes you have to step back and just remind people of the basics. It almost seems like. But you were you were gonna you were about to give an example. I'm curious where you're headed with this. Yeah, you're exactly right. We, we, one of the kind of pithy things that we often say is that we in the institution or in, in, in the industry, we can determine, determine importance. We are the, the, the educated insiders who can say out loud with our microphones, this is important, but it is the market in our communities that determine relevance and how much they're going to listen to that message. And if we're just standing in a corner saying something's important, but we haven't created that bridge, then we're not, are we really serving our mission? And are we really educating and inspiring our audiences? Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of a, a key question that we often uh, come to, that we kind of, kind of often uh, confront. <laughs> and it's our, funny because it's like so core, right? Oh, right? Like, I mean, you're, you're like getting, you're talking about know your own bone. I mean, you're like, you're drilling into the marrow here, right? Like this is, and it's funny because it's so easy to overlook that when it's in reality, it is the, it's the bread and butter of the whole thing. Right, absolutely. And one example that's particularly relevant for heritage sites and history organizations is that we find that within the industry, we tend to be, oh, and I am too, really hung up on the words. We are not a historic site. We are a historic house. We are not a cemetery. We are a monument. We are not a historic building. We are a mural. We are not a this, we are a that. But one thing that's very clear in the research is that the market doesn't make those distinctions. We ask people about the last historic house they visited, and they'll say something that's a heritage site or living history museum or something that the people within that institution identify as something completely different. And so even to your point about the basics, Sometimes we get so hung up on the words that we're using that we miss these big flags that can flags, excuse me, that can help us figure out the trends that we should be focusing on. Yeah, it's interesting because you think that data is going to be like at this nuance level, and sometimes it's really just making you kind of figure out what your your core story is. Absolutely. You know? Um, so let's talk about this for a second. So your work, I mean, almost exclusively focuses on visitors serving culture and cultural institutions. But, um, you know, a lot of the people that we engage with are non-visitor serving, you know, maybe like a more advocacy focused cultural group. Is there data that you'd encourage them to focus on to support their work? Is it the same type of data? I mean, what we just talked about obviously matters, right? Like what is your core story? What are you trying to tell and what, how is it relevant? Um, and in relevancy, of course, is important to everyone right now, and as it should be always. But um, what about organizations like that that don't have members and visitors? 
Great question. And I would say for them, it's equally, if not even more important, right? Visitor serving organizations have something that they can track, right? That's the gate. That's revenue. That's attendance numbers. But advocacy organizations are similarly aiming to motivate behavior. But how they're doing it and the pathway to doing it can be a little bit less cut and dry than this much money, this many feet in the door. And that's by necessity, you know, you're aiming to change policy or you are aiming to, you know, influences people's hearts, minds, and the ballot box. And you need those hearts and minds first. And market research or understanding what people think can help those organizations figure out where are we starting from? How much excitement or full understanding is there truly in, in our community regarding the topic that we're trying to influence? Where are we starting from? Where are the, where are the gaps that we should focus our energy and our funds and our, you know, our words <laughs> to help inspire the motivation, to inspire, to motivate people and inspire people to take the action that we're trying to get them to take, be that a donation or voting for somebody or aiming to help us lobby for a cause that moves these organizations forward um, or anything of the sort. It's interesting because I feel like sometimes people think, well, the data-driven stuff that, you know, we hear about from Know Your Own Bone and, and that kind of thing, that's for people, you know, like you said, there's a gate, you can measure that. But really the way you just suggested it is that it's almost even more compelling. It's almost more important to have that data because you don't have the gate, right? Um, so I think, you know, hopefully advocacy organizations are, you know, kind of listening up at, at, at that point. So um, before we, we conclude here, because uh, I'm sure you've got some, some data to drill into today, um, the, the, the pandemic, I mean, it, does it change everything we thought we knew uh, about this industry? Are the fundamentals still the same? What trends are you looking for that are going to tell you that? I mean, I know you're kind of, we're asking you to look into the, the, the crystal ball at this point, but like, is, is, are there fundamentals there? Do they still exist? What, I mean, everybody's got to be just sort of wondering what's next, right? Absolutely. Perhaps the thing that influences the biggest changes that we're seeing, and it's predicted that we'll continue to see, is when people were at home during the pandemic, we got very used to using our devices and spending time online. Now, one thing that's interesting that we often tend to forget in the industry is that even before the pandemic, our audiences were already online, spending many hours a day on digital platforms, on their computers, on their phones. And now they have been during the pandemic even more so just in different places, just at home, <laughs> rather than out and about taking selfies or at work. And one thing that's happened is we've seen it, an increased level of expected competence on the internet. And that absolutely impacts cultural institutions mm -hmm. because we don't get, we, there, sometimes there's a mindset that we might get an added bonus for posting things on Instagram, but we don't. It's an expectation that we will be responding to questions, that we will have an online ticketing system that isn't harder to get than a mortgage. That is, that's going to be streamlined and is going to be as easy to figure out as possible. And one thing we are seeing, a big change that we've seen during the pandemic, is we're seeing our, there are some people who have been interested in visiting cultural institutions, made the plan, got to the ticketing system, decided it was too much of a hassle, and decided to do something else. And so, you know, some people think it's just enough to have online ticketing, you know, but, you know, people want to do it and they want to do it quickly. So the increase in digital and digital is going to affect a lot of things. But one thing I do want to say as a takeaway to listeners 
is you hit on a really good point, and that is, you know, are things completely different? What's what's changed in terms of how we're perceived? And we have seen overall the perception that cultural institutions, and specifically exhibit-based cultural institutions, so history museums, zoos, aquariums, are even greater assets to their community than they were believed to be before the pandemic. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of institutions did what we were talking about. They moved things online and showed their relevance, Mm -hmm. and they met the market where they were. They started to miss them. Exactly. People miss them. And many of them started talking about important topics, figuring out things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice topics where before they weren't talking about as much. And people Mm -hmm. are seeing institutions walk their talks in terms of what they stand for, for their missions a little bit more. So while things are different, and again, attendance is not expected to recover until at least 2022. So 2021 is, again, going to be a difficult year. We are projecting around 70% of attendance to cultural institutions on average, um, 70% of 2019 attendance. So we're still, we're not going to hit it out of the park this year. That's an important expectation. But we're right now predicted to be close if we maximize our opportunities by the end of year 2022. So it's really a time to keep going, to keep moving forward. And I know it's hard. We've had a lot of blows this year, of course, um, especially with, you know, lost a lot of friends <laughs> in the industry because of tighter wallets and things that happened during the pandemic. But it's things are looking hopeful that if we can continue to keep the gains that we have established in terms of things like trust and accountability and credibility and how big of asset we are to our communities that we may be able to recover and um, that the pandemic might have even set us up for an even stronger future. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are, you know, this is sort of more on the subjective side, but like I said, like, I think people miss this stuff. Right. And it's like, wow, I, I wish I could go back there, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, What's next for you? You are like prolific in your writing. So you're getting back to travel, I presume. Um, You know, that's the hope. Um, Are you writing a book? Are you doing a blog? Are you going to have your own podcast? Is there, you know, like an HGTV show coming up? Like what's, where, where, what's next for you? Oh my goodness. What a fun question. Well, right now we're taking stock as at the time of our recording, the United States where we've been in a period of transition for a while, but at the time of that Nicholas and I are recording, we're in particular time of transition regarding safety protocols on site and what people expect. So right now we're holding down the fort and trying to be as helpful of a resource as we can for our partners. And also for those who, um, who maybe just simply be readers of Know Your Own Bone, who are wondering how do we keep people engaged? So right now, we are get, and we are getting back to, we're getting a lot of folks reaching out to us right now, asking about things like shifting perceptions in mem- membership structures, and how do we have more mission-based members, which is which I think many institutions learned during the pandemic is pr- rather critical to solvency for many organizations, mm-hmm. having this core group of supporters. So we're doing a lot of research for specific organizations on that. A lot of folks are reaching out to us right right now to know their data-informed optimal price point. Hey, we've been closed. People are coming back. They miss us. So there's some market potential there. At the same time, we don't want to be priced so high that people choose to do go to the beach instead or something else. Um, so we're doing. A, we're really right now at it's a surge of interest in organizations getting their feet back on the ground so that they can start to thrive again starting in 2021 and so that 2022 is the best year we can be and that we can move forward with the lessons that we've learned so you're you're busy on 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 all of that but yeah. there's, not a, there's there's not a know your own bone book in the works or a uh, 
it's yet. funny. It's funny you should ask that. We were in the process of writing a book right before the pandemic struck. And now everything's and changed. <laughs> and thank goodness, thank goodness <laughs> we didn't do anything there because right now the pandemics, it didn't, pandemic really spearheaded and accelerated is probably the right word. A lot right. of trends that we were already seeing. Sure. And so the realities right now are, are, are realities that we could have seen coming, but we might have seen them coming 10 or 15 years at the pace that, you know, our right. industry moves. Yeah. So yeah, there was one in, <laughs> there was one in the in process and now we're seeing where things pan out. And to your point, we're still looking and we will be looking for a long time to see how much things have changed. Has the pandemic shifted the demographics? of who visits these institutions or how they connect to these organizations and their missions. Mm -hmm. And will they expect ongoing permanent digital content the way that, you know, it's been provided? Does it have to be hybrid? Do you have to offer it in person and, you know, online and how, how do you fund something like that? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and I also think, you know, the, the experience with even like PPP loans where we made them available to cultural institutions, that was a real shift previously nonprofits and cultural institutions never were eligible for that kind of thing. Um, so it's sort of this, even just this policy shift in suggesting that well, these places matter and we're going to, we're going to fund these sorts of things. We're going to keep them alive. Um, which is, you know, just even just a little shift there. Um, so where can people find you? They want to, they want to follow you, plug yourself again. Where do we find you on social media? All those places. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. You can find me at ColleenDillon.com, C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-I-L.com. And there you can see links to um, Impacts Experience. You can also find me at Impacts Experience. We are, again, a firm that is happy. We're constantly in markets, monitoring perceptions and behaviors surrounding cultural organizations. So we're happy to share information with you and your organization and or collect information we don't have <laughs> that we might not have on behalf of your institution to get to the core of your audiences to help you, of course, reach your goals of educating and inspiring your communities and aid you in the important work that you do. Cool. And um, last but not least, most difficult question we normally ask, what's your favorite historic place or site? Oh, that is a difficult question. <laughs> right. It's like picking your favorite I child. I can't. I can't. Um, let's pick one that's not a client organization. Oh, I have so many. I could. I, I yeah, don't so pick a client. I would encourage you not to pick a client. I'm not going to pick a client. I'm going to pick an institution with which I have not worked professionally, but do have a personal, uh, a strong personal relationship with. I'm going to pick the Paul Revere House. Um, You've been posting about them lately. <laughs> yeah, I have been. Yes, my family is a um, my family is a very big. You know, it's just we grew up. I, I don't even know how. You know, I think it started with my grandfather. Um, but ever since I was a child, Paul Revere has been the symbol in our family of how when people come together, we all play our roles in history, and how when people come together and play their part, anything is possible. And of course, like in that example, it's creating a new nation and. Today, to make that relevant today, that's overcoming a global pandemic. That's, you know, uprising against racial injustice. Um, it's how we can come together to really overcome things and how Paul Revere, you know, in that theory of things or on that kind of concept um, can be a symbol for the power that we all have as individuals to make a difference. And for that reason, you know, whenever I go to Boston, um, I will always stop at the Paul Revere house and um, just, you know, it's, a, it's a, you know, we were, we're talking about with over what and the power of the stories that our families tell us and that our families share with us. And that's another one for me that's particularly powerful. 
Well, I like it. And I also like that it's, it's never been selected before. So there's, there's a new one. We're going to, we need to, we need to get a map going of all these favorite places. Um, Cause we've, we've done everything from like restrooms, like a amazing restroom in a train station to the Paul Revere uh, house. So you never know what someone's going to select. Perfect. I'm imagining a great big poster with a lot of push pins. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this has been fantastic. Um, we will make sure that there are links to all of this, and then maybe we'll have you back in a year or two and see what the what the data is uh, pointing to in terms of uh, cultural institutions coming out of this pandemic and where we're headed. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. Happy to help in the future in any way. And good luck and thank you to all of you listeners who are doing an incredible job educating and inspiring your communities. It's been a difficult year. And I will say as, as a person who's not in your shoes, we are, I am so grateful for you. So thank you for all the hard work that you've been doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.